0: Welcome to Composer Quest. I'm Charlie McCarran, a composer in Minneapolis, and I started this podcast to share insights on writing music. This eerie piece we're listening to is called The Banshee, written by Henry Cowell in 1925, and performed by this episode's guest, Dr. Brian Campbell. Brian is my former music theory professor at the College of St. Benedict and St. John's University, and he's the one who first introduced me to a lot of modern art music. This episode is a little bit of a who's who in 20th century art music. We mention a lot of composers like Ligeti, Messiaen, Zanakis, Tomasco, Takemitsu. Basically everyone whose names are very hard to pronounce and even harder to spell. They're worth checking out though, so just search for this episode on composerquest.com and I'll have links to all these composers. We'll also get to hear some of Brian's composition tips such as starting out with a single idea and developing it from there.
1: Try to make everything interrelated, where everything grows from a little seed. Everything is composed of the same musical DNA, so to speak.
0: One thing I've always found challenging as a composer is thinking about the form of an entire piece. Brian talks about how each section has its own purpose, and knowing
1: those will help you make a stronger piece, no matter what kind of style you're writing in. The idea is that you have some sections that are expository, where you're stating a melody, a theme. Others that are going to be transitional, where the idea is to get from point A to point B. If you know what you want the section to do, it's a lot easier to write something that's going to work the way you want it to. We'll also get to hear a few of Brian's own
0: compositions, which he based on Emily Dickinson poems. I'm here with Brian Campbell, a professor of music at St. John's University and my former composition professor. Brian, thanks for joining
1: me. My pleasure.
0: It's good to be back in your office. Mm Mm-hmm. kind of feel like I'm at a composition lesson right now.
1: You do, huh? Well, next time I'll have it cleaned up. You've probably heard that before, too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yep. Well, it's all right. Empty desk is an empty mind. Wasn't that Einstein's
1: It's probably true, but I I sometimes wonder if my cluttered desk is a cluttered mind, too.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, let's get right into it, because I know we probably have a lot to talk about. Sure. So when you're teaching composition students, what kind of challenges do you put forward for them?
1: It depends on the student. I teach an introductory course in composition in which I start out with a one-note assignment. In fact, you, or two notes actually. The way it works is that I, I tell them there's a pianist who's fallen on hard times. He's only got two notes that work F and F sharp. And so their goal is to write a piece using only F and F sharp, but they can use any octave. And so it limits them significantly in terms of what to do with pitch, but also forces them to think about dynamics and register and rhythm, elements of music that often get pushed aside in, f- in favor of, of melody and pitch. I've gotten some amazing pieces, just amazing. You know, some of them I'd be happy to hear in a recital. Huh. Really an, an inventive, what people can do with those limited means. Yeah. Well, I got the idea originally by hearing a piece by Yogi Ligeti in which he had 12 movements. And in the first one, he used only one pitch and in, in the second one, two pitch classes and all the way up to all 12 of them. Hmm. And I, I, thought that one was a, a little bit severe, but I thought that with, with two pitches, they, they could, um, could do something. And I, I even chose the pitches that he uses actually E sharp and F sharp, which is better on the page than F and F sharp, but mm-hmm. same thing. Huh? That's cool.
0: Yeah, I've been working with just trying to compose rhythm lines, mm-hmm. and it's a pretty good exercise because you have to think more about the form of the piece, sure. dynamics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What kind of questions do your students have for you most often?
1: Perhaps one of the more common ones will be, how do you get started, uh, particularly on uh, a larger work? and. I always recommend that they sit down and try to imagine what the whole work is going to be, in a sense, rather than just starting to write and you know seeing where things go. That usually isn't the best way to compose. So I'll, I'll ask them, how long is it going to be? We kind of come to an agreement, maybe four minutes, six minutes, something like that. What's the instrumentation? What kind of character is it going to have? What do you imagine the the form being? How many sections and how do they relate and and things like that? So that there gets to be a sort of scaffolding in their mind and preferably on paper. I think it's always better to have an idea where you're going, even if you change it along the way. And that's probably something I've said to you, because I've said that to just about everyone.
0: You've probably had to tell me that because I tend to wander. But how do you think about form as a whole? Because that's something I'm still struggling with as a composer.
1: Sure. Well, that too is a tough one. It's a big question. It's a lot harder to write extended pieces than it is little short pieces for that reason, that you have to put together something that, that hangs together and belongs together But has a number of different sections. I guess what I find most helpful is thinking about formal functions. In other words, the notion that every section has a purpose and if you're aware of the purpose it's a lot easier to write something that's going to work the way you want it to. William Kaplan is an author who wrote about this with respect to the classical style and the idea is that you have some sections that are expository where you're kind of you know stating material stating a melody a theme others that are going to be transitional where the idea is to get from point a to point b you've got introductory sections codas codettas and so if you know what you want the section to do how it relates to the ones around it you probably have the best luck in understanding a larger form. With me, and I don't really consider myself a composer, as you know, I'm really trained as a theorist, but I've, I've written some things recently, and for me, I always seem to find my way into a piece with a single idea. You know, it might be a chord, it might be a texture, a motive, but it's, it's kind of like, I get that, I like it, and things begin to unfold.
0: Yeah, I've noticed that with your pieces, they're really focused, and I like that about them.
1: I guess that's something that I've learned from composers of the past, and which I really admire, which is to try to make everything interrelated. The idea of the organic metaphor where everything grows from a little seed or everything is, is composed of the same musical DNA, so to speak, I i might like a melody that i've written or something like that and, and my next step would be to analyze it kind of like a theorist you know what kind of motives am i using um how can i reuse some of this what would it sound like upside down you know by doing that i get ideas from the ideas and create the illusion that it's all kind of springing from the same dna at least if i'm successful
0: mm-hmm. i always remember you talking about messian as having kind of he builds these languages with every piece and each part is well, part of this language.
1: Yeah, w- with him it's really a single language that he used pretty much throughout his career. Oh, a single language with modes, six modes of limited transposition as as he puts it. And his harmonic language is really quite unique. You can usually tell within a bar or two that it's Messiaen. Just like you can usually tell within a bar or two that it's Beethoven.
0: Is there a quick way to explain his modal composing for someone who's... Yeah, a little bit. Um,
1: His modes of limited transposition are called that because if you transpose them up, say, a half step and kind of keep doing that within a very short amount of time, you'll end up with exactly the same notes. For a example, the whole-tone scale, I believe, is one of his most limited transposition, not one that he uses a lot, but it would certainly fit the bill in that you transpose the whole-tone scale up half a step, and you've got a new scale. Transpose it up another half step, and you've got the very same notes you began with. You're just starting on a different one. And so all his scales work that way. And probably the one that he uses most is the octatonic scale, alternating half and whole steps. So symmetry is a big part of what he does, and he'll do that with rhythms, too. He has a fugue in a piano piece, for example, that is exactly the same backwards as forwards. There are a lot of times where he'll have rhythms which are palindromes. You play them back to front, and they sound exactly the same as front to back. And for him, that's symbolic of the sort of mystery of God, a sort of impossibility that's made manifest by having this symmetry so that he can only do so much with it. He was a mystical Catholic, and you can't really deal too much with Messian without you know acknowledging that and, and dealing with it. Hmm. Maybe that's a problem for some people that it makes his music less accessible. For me, even though I'm not religious, I don't find it that way. I just put myself in that frame of mind and find it just wonderful. How do
0: you think composers can balance mathematical, methodical composing, like Messian style, with instinctive composing? That's maybe more emotional.
1: Well, that's a good question. There have certainly been in the 20th century a lot of composers who have used kind of pre-compositional structures that are mathematical in in some way or another. And I I think the best ones are able to say what they want to say in the sounds through the model that they set up. One composer that occurs to me there would be Ianni Zanakis. I mean, he was very mathematical about a lot of his compositions. And I find his music, a lot of it anyway, just just gripping. Very emotional, in fact. It's not at all cold mathematical music, as one might think of something that is mathematically conceived. But I think it probably depends a lot on what the particular composer is interested in doing. Some people really think it's something that just drives out all creativity. And I don't think it either guarantees a good piece or necessarily creates an uncreative piece.
0: Sure. Well, yeah, one thing I'm working on is kind of trying to set up a system that would randomly generate music in a way, but still have rules to follow Mm -hmm. within the randomness. What advice would you say for someone who wants to try adding elements of chance into their music? How do you keep it interesting to the listener?
1: Well, that's a good question. I don't use chance in any of the pieces that I've written thus far anyway and I would only think about using it to some extent I've taught things about Cage quite a bit in my classes as you probably remember and I find his mind just to be unbelievably inventive and in some ways I really admire the man but on the other hand I think his way of composing really doesn't offer people too many ways to go. And I guess if I were to use chance, it would be in the sense of probability, which is kind of what you're describing, you know, putting limitations on things. And would use it more to create a texture than any sort of note-to-note sense of a piece. I can think of a, a couple composers that, you know, are interesting in that regard. Um actually Zanakis again, but also a guy named Dmitri Tomaszko. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He teaches at Princeton. He's, he's relatively young and really an incredible mind. And he has a, a way of composing, I know, where he'll create a, a sort of background with a computer and generate it using probability or some sort of algorithm. And then on top of that, he'll write his own music, often for instruments. And so it's kind of a, a merging of those two things.
0: I like that idea. Yeah. Because I feel like if the melodies are random, it's kind of hard for anyone to follow. mm -hmm. But if you have some elements of randomness in the background and the melody is something that you've composed specifically, then...
1: Right, exactly. Barton and Priscilla McLean are another couple of composers who do that sort of thing. And it's really remarkable what they're able to generate from that. And they, they use that in just about all their pieces. There's going to be that element of chance, but it's created in a controlled sort of way. Hmm. Well, you can actually see demonstrations of his um, composer's playpen as, as he puts it on YouTube. Cool. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. Actually, going back to Dmitry Tomajko, I'd, I'd highly recommend to you and anyone listening to this, uh, check out his website he had some demonstrations of what happens when you put constraints upon chance. First of all, he just had random notes playing, you know, completely random, no real constraints. And it sounded like you know a bunch of random notes. And then he restricted them to certain intervals or restricted the pitch set that he was using to a smaller group. And each time he added another constraint to it, it began to sound more and more like, like real music. It was really fascinating the way those constraints are apparently part of what we do in, in just about any style. They're there going to be constraints.
0: That's cool. That's a little bit like what I've been working on, actually, but I just have no idea what uh, instructions I would put into this robot composer to tell it where the melody should right. go exactly. But I if, mean, there's
1: if I were to do something like that, I wouldn't use a melody in in the traditional sense.
0: Hmm. What are some tips you would have for students writing
1: melodies? Melodies, sing them. A melody is something that's intended to be sung. And if you can sing it and it sounds good, it probably is good. You know, there are things you can say about melodies. They'll often have a single high point and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it really depends on what the function of the melody is.
0: Maybe we could talk a little bit about your own composing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You've been working on kind of a song cycle.
1: Yeah, I suppose you could put it that way. The, the songs have been kind of dribbling out every, one every couple of years. But I've been writing a set of pieces for Carolyn Finley and Ed Turley, a mezzo-soprano and pianist who teach here at St. John's, St. Ben's, and I think they're both just terrific artists and was delighted that they were interested in performing these pieces.
0: With your songs, do you take existing poems for those? Yeah.
1: For those, I've used um, poems by Emily Dickinson, who I think is just a great poet, great poet. I really feel like it's the text that tells me what to write in a sense and so I spend a lot of time reading the poem thinking about it getting my idea of what it's all about and what I want to say through the music I mean I think music should be an interpretation of a poem almost a sort of literary criticism in tones that explains the poem makes it more vivid in some way I really don't understand at all the way that a lot of pop musicians will work where they'll write the music first and then, you know, come up with lyrics that will go along with it. I could never work that way. Hmm. But, that's, um,
0: that's me. That's my style. Yeah.
1: Well, I've had students that do that too. And there are also some terrific examples of pros out there that do that and do it well. So.
0: Well, I like that method, though, of having the text as what determines the music.
1: I like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's helpful for one thing. You have something to work with right from the start rather than having to face that blank white page. Mm-hmm. I would have to say my music is very different today than I would have thought of it back a few years ago. For a long time, I was kind of an unreconstructed modernist. And what does that mean? Well, in other words, I, I took the philosophy of modernism to an extreme to the point that I at one point didn't really think it was probably a good idea to write tonal music because that had already been done. And my students really are the ones who taught me that that wasn't the case. Most of the students that I've taught have been interested in writing tonal music and had never really thought of doing anything else. And I guess in teaching them long enough, I realized and kind of caught up with the times a a little bit that That's an option, and when I write tonal music, I really feel that it's more my music than when I have tried to write with some of the more modernist techniques. In fact, I think one of the reasons I didn't pursue composition years ago is that while I wanted to make music that sounded like Elliot Carter, if I tried, I knew I wasn't really in control of the sounds, and I didn't feel like it was... Authentic.
0: Yeah. I still, I think it's really good that you did kind of push the avant-garde side of music in our composition classes.
1: I don't as much anymore. Oh. And and maybe I should, but I've gotten away from that a, a little bit.
0: Hmm. Well, the stuff you were exposing us to, John oh. Cage and mm-hmm. um, minimalist composers, Steve Reich. Mm-hmm. That stuff really had an impression on me. Good,
1: good. Well, I still make sure that all the students that that come through my theory class get a dose of that. I'm not sure that I'd do anything with chance or probability in a composition class, but I talk about it in theory.
0: You were saying you have a project in mind that you are going to be composing possibly in the future here?
1: I've had this idea actually for a long time about writing a piece that is very quiet throughout, and that consists of rather long tones and silence as much as sound. I like the idea of something that would be very slow-moving, and I'm not sure if it will work or not. It won't, in my mind, work as a narrative sort of piece, in other words, one that kind of pulls you along from moment to moment. But I think of it almost more as a sound environment that one could put on late at night.
0: Well, that reminds me of uh, I'm taking an online sound design course, mm-hmm. and the professor's been talking about Japanese aesthetics yeah. in music. Mm-hmm. And it's just really fascinating because they use space a lot more than we would in Western music Right, using that negative space and thinking of each individual note as not necessarily connected to the one before it.
1: Ah, yeah, interesting. Well, Takamitsu is a wonderful composer to listen to for that kind of thing. He, too, is, along with Messiaen, one of my favorite composers. I mean, I I just love the sounds that he gets. I wouldn't say that the notes are single entities that are unrelated to the others. I I think usually they're they're almost always related to something. But um, he certainly has a different concept of time in his music, his sense of time seems to be that of inhalation and exhalation so there's always that that little bit of space silence ma is yeah, the aesthetic the... concept that is used in japan takemitsu writes about that in his book confronting silence but yeah i'm i'm fascinated by that kind of thing too yeah
0: what kind of tips would you have for listening to art music i feel like composers and songwriters have so much they can gain from listening to classical music but how I don't know do you have any ideas on how to better listen
1: I would say to anyone just listen and enjoy it don't be too reticent to try something new you know we all like to hear the familiar pieces that we know and and love but sometimes hearing something that's just brand new and even listening to it several times even if you don't like it the first time can be a very interesting experience. That certainly happened to me. I spent a good part of a summer studying Middle Eastern music. I had a hard time listening to a lot of traditional Middle Eastern music because it had such a twangy sort of sound. Mm-hmm. The instruments, like the tar, for example, have a kind of harsh sound, and the singing styles are often harsh. And yet, um, I don't find it hard to listen to anymore at all. Cool. So once ears change. Yeah. When you you listen.
0: Well, any last tips you have for composers who are out there?
1: Well, compose. I think a real composer is someone who composes more or less on a daily basis, you know, day day in, day out. Sometimes it's good just to get notes down on paper, even if you don't think they're very good ones. Once you get in that rhythm, your mind can engage in a different way that may be better than The block, which is often found at the beginnings of things, you know, staring at a blank page.
0: Well, it's been great talking to you, Brian.
1: My pleasure. Nice to see you.
0: Yeah. Good luck with your future pieces.
1: Thanks. So that's my talk with Dr. Brian
0: Campbell. A special thanks to composer Dimitri Tomasco, who was nice enough to let us use the randomized music from his website. Dimitri is doing some amazing things in music theory right now, and he's actually agreed to be interviewed for the show sometime in March. In the meantime, you can check out his book, A Geometry of Music, or his album, Beat Therapy. He also has another album coming out soon, called Crackpot Hymnal. I'll have links to all his stuff at ComposerQuest.com. Thanks for listening to ComposerQuest. I'll leave you with another piece by Brian Campbell, based on the Emily Dickinson poem, Because I Could Not Stop for Death. (laughs)
2: Thank <laughs> you.